Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nottingham Playcast. The podcast is about to begin. Please take your seats. Hello, I'm Craig Gilbert. Welcome to the Playcast. Joining me today is the brilliant writer Nathaniel Price. Nathaniel's new play, First Touch, will be at Nottingham Playhouse from Saturday the 7th to Saturday the 21st of May. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Nottingham Playcast. I'm Craig Gilbert and today I'm joined by um, the writer Nathaniel Price. How are you doing, Nathaniel? I'm very good. Thanks for having me on, Craig. Oh, no, I'm very much looking forward to our conversation. Um, where, are you, um, where are you talking to me from today? Um, at, at home in Brixton, South London. I'm actually talking from my bedroom because my office at the moment is freezing cold. Just the dip in the temperature has been crazy since the weekend. So, yeah, I'm layered up, but um, I'm very... <laughs> Yeah, I'm ready to go. Uh, yeah, it has, it has gotten terribly cold. I thought spring was here. They fooled me. <laughs> I went out yesterday without a jacket. That was a mistake. That was um, a big mistake. Uh, and so obviously you've uh, you've written First Touch, which is coming imminently to the Playhouse, um, which is very exciting. Um, but the play has been on quite a journey, what with the delays and whatnot. Can you tell us a yeah. bit about, uh, well, first of all, tell us how it came about, how you became interested in the subject. Yeah. And um, yeah, tell us a bit about the play's journey over its, what is it now, almost three, maybe four years of development? I actually look back on the emails today, it's five years, can you believe it? It's wow, crazy. that is a long that time. time yeah. Yes, very long time. So yeah, the idea actually came about through Adam Penford, the artistic director for the Nottingham Playhouse. We worked together um, previously when I was a student at the National Film and Television School. Um, mm. And there I had a short play at Soho Theatre as part of my showcase. Um, and Adam directed it. And then when the news came out about Barry Burnell, when it kind of like the big story broke and all the whistleblowers came out, basically I was watching with the news with my mum. And she turned to me and kind of went, Is there anything you need to say to me? And it, in that moment, it really kind of hit me like, oh, my goodness, you know, like cause I used to play football. Um, it's what I wanted to do as a kid. Yeah, and I used to play for Crystal Palace. And mm-hmm. so I played at very high standard. And just that kind of, we didn't have a car growing up. And so a lot of time I would be taken to and from training by coaches and, you know, me by myself. I spent a lot of time in, in their care. And I just sat there and it kind of like the reality of it hit me kind of like there, but for the grace of God goes I, you know, like that is, it's such a huge monumental thing for all these boys who have these hopes and dreams crushed by this horrific act. Um, and so when Adam came to me and said, look, I've, I would really, I'd love to do a play about this. Are you, are you interested? I was like, absolutely. I think obviously with my background in football, I understand, understood the world and understood kind of the pressures that are put upon you and understood the kind of drive and the ambition and the dreams of these boys who were trying to achieve this this goal um and so yeah it was kind of like a no-brainer for me to do it but then the more obviously research i did into the the sexual abuse just the more harrowing it became and the the actions of people like the survivors like david lean just became all the more pertinent and important i just felt this is a story that really does need to be told and thankfully yeah after all the delays that have been you know, the COVID and five years later, now we're, we're at a position where we can finally put it on. And I'm really excited by that. So am I. I mean, I think I I read 
the draft of the play that you delivered in 2019, and it was uh, and it was great then, and it's got a real um, uh, like depth of understanding about uh, the lead character and the experience he goes through. And I just I'd love to talk a little bit more about the research you did for the project. Did you um, did you speak directly to survivors of the abuse scandal in football? Yeah, we spoke to David Lean, who's been so instrumental in this whole process and just mm. being so open and honest about his experience. He was one of the first victims of Barry Burnell um, when he was, I think he was like 13 years old, 12, 13. Mm. And so a lot of David's experience with his permission has been lifted and put into this play. And, and I think it really gives it that authenticity. But he he helped me to really understand kind of the different aspects of the abuses um, that were that, that went on um, during Barry Burnell's sort of under uh, basically he, when he, when he was um, in charge of, of the kids, where it kind of took on different shapes for different boys, and 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 that was really interesting. And then we spoke to um, psychiatrists in Birmingham who were again really instrumental in getting into the mindset of people who commit sexual acts uh, mm. against children. Um, and usually, you know, the predominantly is people within, um, they are known to, to um, the victims, and it's usually people of positions of trust, and they, the grooming does go on for a long time. And so that was very useful for, for me as a, in my research to see how this relationship would have been forged, how um, this person would have carried favour with the parents, how he would have presented himself, and kind of, yeah, just what his mindset is, not overly malevolent in the sense of just you know there's, there's no feeling there but like what could have caused this what what is the background of people like majority of people who you know perpetrators of this crime and mm. so that was really interesting for as a writer to get into that mindset as well and not just do it kind of like a 2d um villain you know it was yeah. it was quite interesting to get into the mindset of the character of lafferty who is the coach um so that was very very helpful um and so yeah people have just been very generous and i think it because it is such a an important subject matter and, and one thankfully that is getting quite a lot of exposure that um people were very forthcoming with their with their um, knowledge and 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 experience surrounding it and obviously first touch is uh, your first full-length play but you've got a hell of a career behind you already as a writer of television you've written for um uh, the adaptation of Noughts and Crosses. You've written episodes of Pinstar and have numerous shows in development with uh, production companies. But where where does the writing journey start for, for you? First of all, where did you grow up? Did you grow up in South East London? South West London, yeah. So, West London. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I'm from Brixton. Uh, I've returned to Brixton after like five years in North London, which is a bit of a shock to the system. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, but now I'm back south and um it usually my writing usually well it used to really did, like start with character yeah observations of people um character is essential for my, for my writing and then kind of from that story would develop or i'd put them in scenarios and oh what if this happens this type of person or you know and so it kind of goes from there or or yeah i, I love to people watch you know when i go out i do kind of i take in scenes i take in characters i i draw upon my own past um, experience of situations and, and, and characters that I encountered um, and yeah just jot things down always make notes of uh, things that interest me or from that theme start to, to emerge as well I'm kind of always drawn to people on the periphery of society 
mm. outliers who who um you know are searching for something or or people who are suffering from a crisis of identity because i my own personal experience of playing football and then suffering an injury went through that myself kind of like having something that's so clear to me taken away now what do i become if i'm not that person anymore and um, so i'm always intrigued by the those types of stories and just on that were you uh were you writing from an early age were you writing sort of alongside uh playing football was it a thing that you always did or did the writing come when football was no longer an option as a result of your injury no i did i did drama actually when i was younger which i absolutely loved wasn't very particularly wasn't a good actor at all but (laughs) i really enjoyed the creation of stories so I belonged to like a inner city, there was a um, little group in Peckham called the Treehouse and we'd go on a Saturday and we'd devise plays and then um, we'd perform those plays in London, but then also for a week long drama festival in Ilfracombe, Youth Arts Drama Festival, which I absolutely loved like getting out of London and, and, and going to meet all these kids from different parts of the UK would come and put on performances and showcase pieces and stuff. Um, so that was usually in the summer when I wasn't playing football. Um, so I'd do that, do that, and then yeah, when the season starts again, you know, it was back to the what I really, really wanted to do. But I've always loved story. My mum used to read to me and my two brothers all the time at bedtime. Uh, would really encourage us to like explore different types of stories. And uh, you know, to, to be honest, I loved watching TV as well. You know, I loved the shows that we were on and and would consume that with a passion. Um, and theatre, same way, just, you know, going to it is, is a different type of experience and something that I've always admired. And that sense of danger of the opening night or, you know, that just anything can happen on the night was always something that I kind of was drawn to. But more, the, as I say, the more the creation of it rather than the actual performing in it, which I found to be quite awkward and quite difficult at times. Uh, when does it uh, occur to you? When's the moment when you think, you know what, actually, I think I think I could probably have a go at making my life out of this um this is what I'm going to commit myself to it was a weird I can, I can remember the day clearly and I was actually working at the football association at the time and I'd already started to kind of like be one of those secret writers you know do short oh. stories or I'd started to download scripts from the you know the BBC writers room and, and look at the format of them and do my own based on kind of quite kitchen sink um stories based on you know yeah my area and observations about it and then my brother who's um, an artist knew Tony Grassoni and he gave my one of my um, first early pieces to Tony to read he was like look sooner or later if you're serious about this people are gonna have to read what you do so you might as well you know and did you um did you know he was your brother was going to do that or did he did he do it sort of behind your back as it were he, he did tell me he was going to do it he said look if you want me to do it I will do it, you know, I will, I will happily give it to you, uh, tell you to read. And I was kind of like, um, and R, and he's like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it for you. And so, yeah, he he passed it on. And thankfully, the feedback from Tony was very, very positive, very good. He's like, you know, these are your strengths. These are your weaknesses. This is what you need to work on. Um, but I think you do have something. And that kind of, that pattern was followed by other uh, people within the industry who kind of read my work. Were like, yeah, you've definitely got a talent for, for, for writing. Um, and then it was a producer actually who had gone to the National Film and Television School who read my work, who really encouraged me to apply. And I, so I did on a whim, really, not not truly believing that I would get in. Um, then, yeah, you know, I got an interview and then the rest, as they say, is history, really. I kind of 
just really, they, they said to me in the interview, look, if we offer you a place here, are you willing to give up your you know, relatively well-paid job to do this? Mm. And I was like, absolutely. You know, like, I just, it was just something that was drawing me to the, to, to writing. I, I can't really explain it. And I remember the day saying to my partner who also worked at the FA, I was like, I'm going to try and become a writer. And she was like, go for it. And you said you were uh, at the beginning of that process doing like secret writing, as you said, and uh, da- um, downloading scripts and getting used to the format and whatnot. Was there anything you read or, at that time that particularly inspired you, that was a, an important piece of work for you as you were figuring out how to put drama on the page? Oh, that's a really good question. One of the first scripts. There are a lot of um, the scripts I read early on actually were quite, or were films that I liked. I wanted to see how they translated onto screen. Mm-hmm. For instance, um, Leon the Professional, I know it's a bit problematic now, and even talking about the subject matter in terms of first touch, uh, that film and, and kind of what it alludes to, but when I was younger, that was quite a, an important film for me. Robocop, for instance, again, very action-y, but to see how it was how it was done and the formatting now, if you look back on that, is very old-fashioned. Um, and then one that kind of really... I thought, wow, this is this can be like poetry because the other ones, although I love those films, they're very much like blueprints. But whereas when I read um, the Shawshank Redemption, I was like, wow, this can actually be something in in of itself, you know, like it doesn't have to be a really really quite dry read. It can be quite uh, entertaining and gripping uh, for just as just as a read. It, even if it doesn't get made, this can be something you know that you can be you can be proud of. So it was like it was really useful to to read the different styles and different genres of scripts, but it's always something that when people ask me about you know what can I do to get into writing, I always say read the scripts of the films or TV shows that you love and see how they they translate. Because um, I think that is generally one of the best ways of learning the craft. And of course, then you, uh, as you said, uh, you went to the. Um... National School of Film and Television, and you did the script writing MA. Is that right? Is that right? That's right. Yeah, two year MA. And can you um can you tell us just a little bit about what that process was like, and uh, and I suppose what you got through it, and well, basically, was it a good time for you? Did you was it a worthwhile process for you? Absolutely, it was brilliant. Two years, I can recommend it more. If that's if that's the avenue that you want to go down. Um, for me, not coming from that world, that industry. Um, it was it was scary, you know. It was something like, "Am I? Do I really belong here?" You know that people talk a lot about imposter syndrome. Yeah. And I can remember my heart rate was like going at a rate of knots when we when we had had a first crit where you bring your work in, and the group reads it, and then they provide feedback. You know that's terrifying. As I say, I was a secret writer. I wasn't like opening out there going, "Hey, this is what I do," and I'm confident about it. It was like. It took me a while to get used to that, but it was invaluable in terms of like um, recognizing where you need to work, areas you need to work on, um, what really lands with some people and not quite with others and why. Um, And also it it kind of taught me not to be precious about things too much, to really explore uh, in a safe environment, but to really explore different avenues, different genres, different mediums um, than what I probably would have thought because as I say starting out I did quite um kitchen sink type stories um whereas when I finished film school I had been doing fantasy and romance and and all these different types of genres that I don't think I would have necessarily have um even attempted beforehand but it also gives you 
great access to different creatives. Um, so I worked with, uh, I worked on um, a grad animation film, which was like a fantastic experience. And our little film went all around the world and we had people writing to us from, you know, Argentina and, and um, Europe and stuff saying just how much the film connected, particularly with kids. Yeah. You know, how, how kids really responded to this film about um, a man in a submarine on top of a, of a mountain, isolated again. And then he takes in these, this lonely little chick and then from that he, he has a family. And it, it just, people, you know, we had one meaning for it as creatives and other people put their own meanings on it. And I just thought that was the beauty of um, the visual medium. You know, it really became something more important than, you know, like money or, or anything like that. It was how it touched people's lives, which was, you know, coming from film school, just off the, straight out the bat like that, straight out the gate like that was really quite, um, quite moving, it was really touching. And you, um, yeah, and you come out of film school and does it, uh, do you uh, start working straight away? Were you, uh, were you fortunate in that regard that you were, you were straight, you were, had a project that was picked up immediately or what, what was the, what was the process of actually breaking into the industry after your uh, MA was completed? Yeah, no, I was very fortunate. I, um, in the first year at the National Film Television School, we did a, um, we had a performance piece again at the Soho Theatre and um, Anne Edivine from the BBC uh, Writers' Room came to see that showcase and particularly liked my piece. And from then I sort of developed a relationship with Anne. In, she was like, when you graduate, come and see me with your portfolio because I, you know, I'd really be really interested in, in, in working with you. Um, so I followed that up basically, but before graduation, Anne had passed my short play that she'd seen on to um, Sally Evans, who was a BBC, um, part of BBC Radio, and Sally commissioned me to, to write um, my first radio drama, um, which was a fantastic experience. Again, being, you know, you have such a high calibre of um, performers who come in that you can acquire for those two days and then being involved in, in the recording session. I learned a lot about, you know, again, the craft of things, what's needed, sometimes have a tendency to overwrite or I did at that point, you know, so to edit down a bit, you know, get just your work much tighter and have these professional people coming in and discuss it was just fantastic. So I was fortunate to have that to look forward to upon graduation. But then also I had um, another commission um, basically to, to, to develop this idea that I pitched um, when they send you out to meet the industry towards the end of your, your um, MA. Mm. I just pitched this idea um, and this production company took to it and yeah, commissioned me to write it. So I was quite fortunate and that kind of then led to other work and, 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 and I've been w working steadily ever since. So it's been, it's been great so far. I am very aware that, you know, that's not always going to be the case and, you know, you have to make the most out of your, your peaks because there will be troughs. But um, yeah, so far I've been quite fortunate. And you said that uh, during the MA, uh, that your critical feedback sessions, at least in the um, uh, early part of it, were something something of an ordeal. You know, it's quite a, a, you know, there's a huge magnifying glass on you in that situation. Um, and I just wondered what it was like, because then you went on to, to work in writer's rooms for shows that um, you hadn't created. So Noughts and Crosses and Tin Star. And I just wonder 
what um what it feels like to be in one of those rooms and what's that what that's like for a, a writer when it isn't uh necessarily your your generative idea that's being explored but the idea of someone else and you have to bring your creative voice into part of a wider process how what does that feel like yeah it's it's, it's a, i always feel like it's a great privilege to be asked to go into a writer's room and it's generally excitement you know you go in there and People are very welcoming. I went, my first proper one was Tim Star and it was quite a big one to start with. And I was the junior writer on there, but everybody made me feel so welcome. And basically it was said from the out, from the start that, you know, everybody's opinion is valued here and there's no such thing as a bad idea. I mean, of course there are bad ideas, but they're not gonna be shut down and we're not gonna, you're not gonna be made to feel like a fool. And so that instantly puts you at ease. And then, yeah, it's, it's, it's just such a joy to be around like-minded people trying to, trying to break story and trying to come up with ideas and characters. And yeah, it, it's, it's just, it's a real joy. I can't really explain it any, any better than that, really. Obviously, a lot of people uh, who listen to this um, uh, won't know anything about that process. So can you uh, just talk us through a little bit of what that's like when you're, before you go off to write your episode, What's it like when you're all together in the room and you're you're breaking story and coming up with ideas? Like, what does that uh, what does that look like? It really depends on the room and and who's leaving that room. Sometimes you'll go into a room where, you know, you have ten pieces or eight, depending on how many episodes there are, huge blank pieces of paper on the wall, and you have to fill those with story beats. So, you you know, your lead writer might have an idea of where the series starts and where it ends and what happens in the middle, but everything in between that is up for grabs. Whereas you might then might go into another room where the creator, creator or the lead writer has a very clear idea of what the series is, who the characters are, you know, what the um, key events throughout the series are gonna be. So you'll have a story document that you will read before you've gone into that room. And then again, but everything is up for grabs, but you're working off something and you're kind of uh, spitballing ideas based off this um, content that already exists. Um, and both of them have their advantages and disadvantages. Um, I, I personally do like to have something there to work from. So like I can go in, I've, I'm kind of like prepared and I'll have ideas, suggestions potentially for characters or for, for plot. Um, but then at the same time, you know, there is a, a chance if it is just, you know, blank piece of the paper that you can you really, you know, stamp your kind of creative authority on something. Um, but it is it is very much understanding what the lead writer or the creator's vision is for this show. And sometimes that is not the same as what you would necessarily want to do with it. But then how can you help support that vision? How can you how can you make this the show that the the creator wants wants to make? At the same but then at the same time not going along with everything just as a yes man or a woman. You know, you have to speak your mind at points when you don't agree with something and provide reasons as to why you don't agree or you know, potential solutions or um, avenues that you can go down that, you know, that the creator or other people hadn't thought of, and then that can lead to in interesting ideas and, and, and debates. But um, it's a good writer's room that will always, always have, you know, a good back and forth, allow everybody to talk, allow everybody to have a thrown suggestion, but then somebody will keep it on track and, and keep it, steer it in the right direction. 
And then after that process, when you go off to write your episode or episodes, um, how much creative freedom do you have then? Basically, what I want to know is how much information you take to your desk when you sit down to do your uh, like scene by scene writing, for example. So will you have uh, will you know what each of the scenes are going to be in your episode? And then you're going to and you're going to work from a document that has that information to create your script. Or is it more that you will just have uh, broad story beats of these things need to happen in this next hour or two hours and I have to figure out a way of putting them uh, in a, a cohesive and dramatic uh, format? Which, which of those two is it? Or is it a bit of both? It's a bit of both, yeah. Again, it really depends on uh, the production, who's who's running it, who's leading it. Um, sometimes you'll have a very detailed, potentially a beat sheet of like, what yeah for your episode and then you go off and do your scene scene by scene based on that sometimes you'll have like a one page of this is the you know the, the beginning middle and end of your episode but then you go off and do your scene by scene filling in the blanks of that you know so it really depends on on the production um and again there are advantages and disadvantages of both but like if the writer's room is longer hopefully when you go to your to do your scene by scene you should have a more detailed beat sheet or if it's not a beat sheet, it's quite a more detailed outline of what you know what you're going to have for your episodes for you to work from. And can we talk a little bit about the difference then in writing a play? I'd love to know what sure. uh, sort of uh, the craft element of the process of writing first touch was, for example, in relation to the experience you have of working on television shows. Like, what was um, how did you start with that? Was it um, did the structure occur to you immediately? Um, you spoke at the start of our conversation about, you know, beginning with character. And do you, uh, but when you're beginning with character, are you sort of building up material that you're then going to mould later? Or do you already have uh, a structural path in mind through which you're going to explore this theme and story? Yeah, so I knew pretty early on with First Touch that I wanted it to take place over the course of the season. Yeah. Um, so I had that kind of structure of, what those key moments in that season would be, where this young character would be in terms of his career that he stands on the precipice of becoming a professional footballer. And this was like the biggest season of his life, potentially. And then the return of the coach would come in and, and disrupt that. So I had that kind of structure in place. And what I did is I kind of went and worked on the on who, these, who Clayton was, who the main character was, who this young man was, and what did he want, how... Uh, spoke a lot with Adam. We did a lot of back and forth. I would do a document. Adam would read it. Then we would meet up, discuss it. One of the things was make um, that we decided early early on was making it a mixed race family and mm. setting it in 1979/80. You know, in a time where there was quite um, a lot going on for working class families in terms of strikes and and especially in the steel industry. Um, and what would that mean as a mixed race family? What added pressures did that put on the characters? And then yes, doing a lot of research about the time. So would, you know, from then you they were just coming out of the winter of discontent, changes of um, government, um, kind of really, really looking into what was going on that, in that time. Again, how that impacts on um, somebody who is going through uh, what Clayton is going through. But then try not to have too much research influence the story that you want to tell. Once I had all that in place, yeah, I just it started off quite small because it was going to be just originally like um four act play yeah and then so the sort of one act play with like four scenes and so i thought it was going to be in like the smaller 
section. And then when Adam read it, he was like, no, really, I, you know, we really need to expand this and make it bigger because, you know, this is so juicy what's going on here with the main characters, but we, we want this for the main stage. And that kind of, I was like, wow, okay. You know, then I started to be like, what, what can we do here then? What, how, do, how, do, how do we really sort of beef this up? Um, and that was, that was fun and that was interesting. I find writing for stage a little more daunting than the screen because in the screen, I can control the, your eye. And I, I'm yeah. quite a visual writer and I can kind of, you know, um, yeah, I can manipulate you if, if that's the right word. Stage, obviously I love dialogue, but at the same time, you know, if you miss something, it can be quite difficult. You know, you have to, if you're trying to set something up or pay something off and, and, and it's not, sometimes it has to be a little bit bigger, I feel, um, than on, on, on TV. Obviously you're being led more through dialogue. Um, and then yeah, so it was just it was just getting my head around that. I did a I, I read a lot of plays, a lot of different plays. Adam, as I say, was a huge huge help in, in sort of guiding me through that process. And then when Jeff James came on board, the director, mm. you know, again he was instrumental really on like um, just helping rejig things around in terms of structure and um, maybe having a scene in, yeah in the wrong place and. Um, so that was really invaluable that helped with it because it is a collaboration as well. Like TV is complete collaboration and theatre is the same. So that was very helpful. When you um, in the early part of that process, when you you know you're going back and forth with Adam and you're sharing documents, um, what does that what does that writing look like? Is that sort of off the page like uh, story outline and maybe character biogs, or are you are you already writing in uh, script format at that stage and just figuring things out sort of on the fly How, what did what were those early documents like yeah they were very much like log line character breakdowns and then uh kind of like a paragraph on what each scene was going to be what the, what the key themes of the scene key action um yeah so just getting that structure really in place um and the characterization those are yeah those are the early documents Oh, that's um, that's super interesting. So you already had like a pretty robust idea of what the play would look like even before you sat down to write the first draft. Oh, yeah. Yeah. As I say, like I kind of knew I wanted it to take place over the course of the season. And I kind of from uh, the research that I had done um, looking into the to the abuse, kind of like what the key uh, points would be. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, working those into the scene, uh, into the scenes. Uh, and then Adam feedback on those, and then yeah, they they changed about and things got taken out, the things got expanded. Um, but yeah, I I I generally quite like to have a detailed, call it an outline or you know in in um, script writing in TV writing scene by scenes. I, I like to have something to work from. I don't quite don't really like to go um, straight to script on something if I don't know where I'm going with it. This idea that you mentioned of being able to control the eye more when you're writing for TV and film, and obviously you don't have that uh, uh, that specificity of control when writing for the theatre. What tricks and techniques have you discovered that sort of allows you to have allows you to guide the audience when you can't do a close up, for example? How have you how have you overcome that challenge? Oh, that's again that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I've always liked monologues, and there are monologues in this. Um, I feel they're quite effective. I know they're not everyone's cup of tea, but you know, if they're good enough for Shakespeare. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, to 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 really draw you in and to get into into this character's head, because 
the problem with the story, this story is that Clayton, the main character, doesn't really have anybody that he can confide in because obviously the whole tension of the thing is that he has this horrible secret that he's keeping, he's trying to keep a lid on. Mm-hmm. And there's no real release for it. And it comes out in different ways. And one of those ways is a really disturbing interaction with his with his girlfriend. And so like you have to at some point get a, a look in by Clayton's head of what is going on. And so the best way to do that, you know, you could you could have had a close up on TV and you could have you could have shown different things, maybe in even a montage or something like that, but like on in a theatre by a, a monologue. I think I feel was very effective and, and, and hopefully the audience do too. Yeah, absolutely. And I thought, um, certainly in the, in the draft that I read a little while ago now, uh, when Clayton is talking about what it feels like to play football, there's, there's a brilliant monologue where he uh, is talking to, uh, uh, I think he's, he's scoring his first professional goal. That's not a Oh, right, yeah. Uh, no. I, I thought that was, um, that was a fascinating way to overcome that challenge of sort of staging sporting drama, if you like, which obviously you can't do literally in a theatre, but that idea of the sort of worm's eye view, the player's eye view of what it feels like to go through a game of high-level football, I thought that was brilliant. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was, um, again, based on research that I'd done uh, and just a really horrible account of somebody who, you know, what you work to achieve all your life and it should be the happiest moment of your life. And mm. then to just feel that pain and that, that isolation in this huge stadium. I just I found it very moving. So, yeah, I felt, you know, there was a place. I, once I read that, I knew I had to include it somewhere for it. And uh, I'm always interested when I uh, talk to writers on this podcast to know, what does a working day look like for you? I'm quite um, rigorous in my schedule. So, like, I will start work at nine o'clock and work through till one, have lunch, back out at two work through probably till five and then call it a day depending on yeah what's happening with my I've got a daughter a three and a half year old so um I've got to spend some time with her at least and how was that how was that during lockdown when you were you were you trying to write and parent at the same time how did you manage that yeah I, I got some very expensive headphones noise cancelling <laughs> headphones because <laughs> we, we were in a one-bedroom flat in uh, north london at the time of the first lockdown and that was quite yeah that was quite uh interesting we should say um and then we moved um once that restriction was lifted we moved back south into a bigger place which was had its own problems <laughs> but um yeah no it was it, lockdown's been quite cha- obviously changed for everybody but i was fortunate enough to, to be able to keep on working and um now with an office it's, it's, it's great i can just shut myself away and 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 get on with things my partner always says I can tell when you haven't spoken to anybody all day because I come out and I'm kind of like all zany and probably not making much sense. But um, yeah, I think again, I think it's tied into the football. I think it it gave me great discipline for for doing things and sticking to things. And so I find that yeah, having that sort of set routine really helps me. Some people might say that's contrary to for creativity, but I actually find it very useful. Um, and do you? Uh... Do you do that even on the days when it's not going well? Do you you force yeah. yourself to be at the be at the desk and get words moving on a page, no matter what? Yes, it's like I, I recently went through experience where, you know, I, I think one week I I've done three pages on a script, and it was it was agony. It was I hadn't really experienced anything like that before, um, 
And when people say, oh, you, you know, writer's block or whatnot, I was like, oh, well, you know, so, well, not that I believe in it, but I haven't really experienced it. I don't think I was empathetic enough. So when it happened to me, I was like, God. But yeah, some, when that does happen, I feel like, you know, sometimes you are better doing something else like reading or going for a walk or, you know, having a shower even. Because usually when ideas come, that's usually when a breakthrough comes, when you step away. But I do force myself to to get things down on a page because, you know, as people say, you can't edit a blank page. You know, you have to have something there to, to rewrite. Um, so, yeah, you're not going to write great every day, but you can write every day. So that's, that's something I think you should do as a writer. Yeah, um, uh, absolutely. And you uh, supposedly, I mean, I, I imagine rather that if you're going to do that, then you sort of have to put your critical brain to one side and just get on with it and hope that later you can re-engage with those critical faculties and uh, really sculpt the stuff that came out when you were being less guarded. Is that, is that the idea? Yeah, yeah. I've sort of seen something somewhere that says, you, you know, write drunk, edit sober. Ah, brilliant. <laughs> so, yeah, sometimes you just have to, you know, you never know what will come out. The majority of it might be really, really bad, but there might be something in there. So, um, yeah, because you know, it, it's the old adage, but writing really is rewriting. So even on a good day, you're going to go back to it and you're going to change things over because it won't look as good as it did that on that day. Um, so, yeah. It's, it's useful for, for, for me. I know some people just do like short, sharp bursts and, and call it a day. But for me, I, I find it quite useful to, to know that's what I'm going to do with my time, be it reading or writing or, you know, some something related to work. Obviously, we're talking pretty much on the eve of uh, first touch rehearsals. You, um, yes. it's, uh, it's Wednesday now, they begin next Monday. Are you going to be okay. spending much time in the rehearsal room at all? Yes, I'm going to be there first week. I'm really excited um, by that. You know, it's great. Again, it's, again, it's, really nerve-wracking as well to you know meet all the new cast and have people discuss your work and then um but I love it at the same time it's 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 such a joy and um you discover new things all the time you discover new ways to make the play better uh and then also like to make it more you know just more robust um and I, I think that's really useful as a writer because you can get very precious about things once you know when you're by yourself and you're sat there and you think oh this is great or you know this really works and then come in to to get it on its feet and then something doesn't quite click or you know so yeah it's just super useful um and yeah it's great that it's going to be in london for the first week so i can attend the full week and then i'll be popping up intermittently to nottingham uh for for the rehearsals and then we'll be there for the final week and then um the tech run so that'll be that'll be really fun uh, great stuff. And um, what's next after First Touch? What does the future hold for you? I've got a few things uh, in development. Um, one that I'm very hopeful will soon receive a green light. So that would be my first green light if it happens. And um, that would be, yeah, just a, a game changer in, in, in many ways, I think, because it's a fabulous project. Uh, obviously, I'm biased, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's it's something that I've been working on for a while. It's been delayed because of COVID. But, um, yeah, fingers crossed for that. Um, and then I've um, I've got or we'll have an episode of The Outlaws season two coming out. I think it's May potentially. Don't quote me on that. Um, so that will be something for people to look out for. And then um, yeah, other other episodes of things potentially uh, in talks with with various uh, people on that. But um, yeah, just mainly TV. Nothing in the theatre. Uh, 
but you know if that opportunity did, were to come up again then i'm sure you know i would i would jump at the chance but it's been as you as i said five years it might be another five years or or even longer before you see something else in theatre of mine. Um, brilliant stuff. I just have uh, one last question, a question I always finish with. Uh, can you tell us about the last work of art that absolutely blew your mind? I mean, art in the broadest sense, so film, telly, visual art, music, anything you like, but the last thing that really made you go, wow. Um, in terms of telly, it was Midnight Mass, was a show on Netflix, and it just kind of like broke all the rules of what you should do in a TV drama, which I thought was, was great. And it just really landed. And I felt it spoke a lot about the human condition, about love, what it means to be uh, alive. Um, and it kind of, yeah, just kind of set the bar to somewhere that I'm striving to, to be. And that was very inspiring to me. So I'd, I'd go with Midnight Mass. Brilliant. Well, that sounds excellent. And um, I'm going to be definitely having a look at that. It has been uh, an absolute pleasure. And um, I can't wait to see First Touch. And uh, yeah, it's going to be great. Thank you so much, Craig. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Nathaniel Price. To book tickets to Nathaniel's brilliant new play, First Touch, head to nottinghamplayhouse.co.uk. Thanks for listening.